didn't realize how long it was since we've been out of the book of Acts. It was in November. I, I thought, wow, it's been that long. <clears throat> uh, so we're going to come back to Acts chapter 6, finish up that particular chapter. We've looked at the first seven verses previously. And uh, <clears throat> I was talking about finding your place of service there in the first seven verses. <clears throat> now the rest of the sixth chapter and then all of the seventh chapter deals with one of the notable characters in the early church. His name is Stephen. And uh, we're going to look at at, uh, at his what we learn from the scriptures about him. <clears throat> the sermon title is called Profile and Courage. If you're old enough, that name, that title may ring a bell. The title Profiles in Courage actually is the title of the book that was authored by John F. Kennedy. It was done back in the mid-50s. I would have been about eight years old when it was written. So I wouldn't have read it yet. So, <laughs> But the study was interesting because it, uh, a couple of reasons. One, it won a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, and there's always been some discussion about whether Kennedy really authored that book. A lot of it was put together by his people and previously done, and, but be that as it may. Um, <clears throat> Uh, the other thing with that is is that it was a, a look at about eight, I think they were fellow senators maybe, or 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 in the realm of government whose lives were a profile in courage. They, were, they did things that were courageous. It bucked against the system. It resulted in some positive significant changes, but profiles in courage. And so when I looked at Stephen's life, I thought, well, there's a profile in courage. I mean, the kinds of things that he did and stood up to, and I thought, well, I'll just steal the title of a book. And so there you go. Acts chapter 6, beginning verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. <clears throat> they produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin or Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. <clears throat> Um, down in the Harrisburg area, it's farm show week. And I know that there are busloads of people that come in, <clears throat> students from school, uh, come in during the week, and uh, they spend a lot of time. There's going to be a lot of people there. 
and they all have little different faces to them. You know, there we were some of it on uh, uh, Pennsylvania Cable Network, the live feed of the farm show, and uh, they're interviewing people and all different looks and shapes and colors and facial expressions and that kind of thing. When someone looks at you, what stands out to them? What do they see? What do people most notice about you? Are, are, they, are they attracted to your attire? Are they attracted to your face? Are they attracted to your hairdo? Or lack of hairdo, as the case may be. Um, are, are, are they, are they, can they sense or read something about you in terms of your temperament? Something about your character? after they spend enough time to get a, a line on you. I want to look at the character of Stephen, the thing that stands out to me about him. And so uh, I'm going to give you some words that are descriptive of him. You, you see if these are going to hold the weight of the scripture as we talk about them. First one is Stephen was a filled man, a filled man. And... <clears throat> It's interesting. We we have phrases that we use um, where we use that phrase "full." Now, I won't use all of the ones that we could encounter, but sometimes we've talked about people who are full of himself, full of themselves, as a kind of like a, someone who is kind of taken up with a almost a, a superiority of attitude, and everything is run through their own point of view. So it's they're full of themselves. Sometimes we say, that person is full of hot air. Use that phrase ever before? If not, maybe you've heard it somewhere. Sometimes we get a little bit shorter and we say you're full of it. Now, we won't get into what the it is, but yeah, anyway, you've probably heard it in a variety of different places. I, I came across a phrase that said, this person was as full as a tick. That's an interesting descriptor, full as a tick. Now, you know what that would be. It would be a tick who engorges on whatever it's chewing on, eating on, sucking on, and then just, you know, that kind of thing. You could probably use full as a mosquito if you want. Sometimes we can talk about person being full of life. They're full of life. So so Peter or, or uh, Stephen is a filled man. So what is he full of? What is he full of? And it's interesting that in the scriptures, it uses three verses that describe the things that he was full of. One we already looked at, <clears throat> and that was Jack, uh, back in chapter, up in chapter, chapter 6, verse 3, where it says they were to call or they were to look about uh, some brothers uh, who were to choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. <clears throat> full of the Spirit and wisdom. So that was a descriptor of these table waiters. You, you would think, you know, what's, what's, a, what's a big job, you know, being a table waiter, <clears throat> caring for the needs of the widows that were neglected to address a particular problem in the early church. It, you know, all you, all you need is somebody that can just get the food to the table. All you need is somebody that can just kind of orchestrate some things so that everybody's need is addressed and cared for. But it's interesting that the qualifications <clears throat> where he is to be full of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, and wisdom. 
The, the word that is used there for wisdom is, is a good Greek word, and it's, uh, the word is Sophia. Now, we happen to have had the good fortune this week of having a dog in our home whose name is Sophia. Now, just, I'd like to tell you that Sophia is full of wisdom. I mean, sometimes full, Sophia is full of energy. I can give you that much. Sometimes he's kind of get it. But Sophia, so you, you know, if you're thinking of a famous movie character, Sophia, uh, I don't know if she's always all that wise, but the point is that this description of Stephen is full of the spirit and full of wisdom. <clears throat> it's interesting. In the book of Acts, there are four uses or four occurrences when that word Sophia is used, the wisdom is used, and they're all descriptive of Stephen. Two in Acts chapter 6, two in Acts chapter 7. That's the descriptor of him. He's a man who was full of wisdom. I think wisdom is the, the ability to understand knowledge of our world and to see godly principle in it and how you apply that to life situations. God, there are, there are people who may have a lot of factual information, but they're not very wise. They make bad choices. There are all kinds of things that can go on. And that can be a part of the description. Peter was a filled man, full of spirit and wisdom. <clears throat> a little bit later, in verse 5, he is described as one who is full of faith. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a little change of the of the order of things, but nonetheless, still the same, full of faith and the Holy Spirit. I, I read a story of uh, uh, about D.L. Moody, early evangelist in, in our American culture, who was asked to go over to England and, and lead some special meetings. And uh, there were a couple people, apparently in this whole process, that took offense that why do we need to ask this guy from America to come over and lead these special meetings on revival or whatever it was that he was preaching on? <clears throat> Dale Moody is essentially an uneducated, uneducated man. Uh, he didn't have the benefit of formal education, but God had his hand upon his life, and uh, some amazing things happened through his ministry. So a, a couple of the clergymen uh, in, in the England, uh, objected. They said, well, who is this moody guy? Does he have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit? Is, 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 is he, he's got a corner on the market? What's so special about him? And so they were beginning to raise some objections that might keep him from coming. One of the, interestingly enough, one of the younger but wiser men made this com comment. He said, Deal Moody does not have a monopoly on the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit has a monopoly on D.L. Moody. So there's a good descriptor. He is full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. In this particular passage we read in verse 8, said Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power. Another descriptor of what it meant. It's interesting that uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, combinations of words, um, here, 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 it's, here it's described, full of God's grace and power. My mind went back to John 1.14, was descriptive of Jesus. And it was said there, 
he the spirit that that he he was Jesus was full of grace and truth full of grace and truth and I thought that's that's in good company that's in good company Peter or, or Stephen here Stephen is a man who is full of God's grace and power interesting combination of compliments or characteristics grace there are people that sometimes around us are not very gracious they're very coarse they're very hard they're very impatient uh, very petulant all kinds of words can be used to describe but sometimes they're not very gracious they're more focused on themselves and power we're all about power in our world but I think that grace and power is a wonderful combination uh, when the Spirit of God is upon a person who helps them to understand that that what they have received from God is a gift and he has extended grace to them. We use that word grace. When we talk about for by grace are you saved through faith. That's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God lest any man should boast. Grace comes to us. It's what we don't uh, we've received that we don't deserve, and God extends his grace to us. It's the only other place where that combination of words occurs, isn't it, John 1, 14, uh passage. He's a filled man. So here's a question for you. Um, what are you filled with? What are you filled with? Sometimes you deal with people and they're filled with anger or they're filled with jealousy. They're full of themselves, or they're full of hot air. They may be filled with a variety of things. When people see you and get to know you, what are you filled with? That becomes a, a powerful force for God to speak into the, their lives along the way. Stephen was a man who was a filled man. And the only way that we get to be filled is to acknowledge our need to be filled and that there is nothing in me that is able to really help or change the lives of people. It doesn't make a difference how many meals you serve or how many places you go. Or if the spirit of grace and glory is not upon you and you're and you're not doing that for the glory of God, if, if, if you're trying to do it for your own forwarding of interest, it's not going to have the impact. But when the Spirit of God is upon his people, it's amazing what God can do. Someone put it that it's amazing what God can do in and through and for you in the, in the hands of a God who has fully controlled you. Uh, does the Holy Spirit have a monopoly on you? And that's an appropriate question. Stephen was a filled man. Second quality the description here is in verses 8 to 14 is that Stephen was a formidable man. Now that word does not occur in the scripture. Uh, so I, I, I insert that. But let me give you the descriptions that are there of him. When you think of someone who is formidable, what do you think of? What, what, for, what, give me some other words. Uh, huh? Goliath. A Goliath. Okay, like, a, yeah. For David and a Goliath, that would be a formidable situation. It's like, imposing, intimidating, overwhelming, impossible, those kinds of things. And to describe Stephen as a formidable character may be a little bit of an overreach unless you see the qualities that are descriptive there. So let me give them to you. Verse 8 says, 
that Stephen did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Acts 6.8. He, uh, here's my word. He's an available man. Now, availability is a key piece. God's not so much interested in your ability as much as he is interested in your availability to be used of him in any way he orchestrates, any way that he chooses. Now, it's interesting. Stephen starts as, in the first part of the sixth chapter, as a waiter of tables, as a, we might call a deacon, but it's technically that office isn't fully blown there at that point. But he's, he's described as one who is waiting on tables to make sure things. And then suddenly you find in verse 8 that he is, used, he is doing great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. How do you get from waiting on tables to doing miraculous things and great signs and wonders? How, does, how do you get there? It's, it's got to be a God thing. It's got to be you being available to you to be used in whatever capacity he prompts you to do. If it's waiting on tables, then fine. If it's something that's more visible, that's fine too. It's not so much what you're doing, it's the availability of you to do whatever needs to be done. And I think that's a key piece. He's an available man. He's also an apologetic man. And I have to describe, I have to, I have to clarify that a little bit when I say apologetic man. I'm not saying that he goes around apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, I, excuse me for doing that. Excuse me for saying that. And I'm using apologetic in a more particular way. We talk about in the world of uh, dialogue with people or theological terms. We talk about people who are who who are in the field of apologetics, and that is simply giving a defense of the word or the truth of God on behalf uh, of the of, of God's uh, God's truth, it, we, we share that with other people around us. Uh, when I think of apologetic people, uh, I'm thinking of guys like uh, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, the good resource tool. I'm thinking of guys like Ravi Zacharias, who has uh, an alliance uh, background um, throughout his ministry and career and has a, a significant inroad and inreach to academia, to be able to make a defense of the gospel uh, in the face of people who just don't think that there's any credible truth to that. And so Ravi Zacharias, will he'll, he'll have a radio program. He's written a whole bunch of books. I, could, I probably could have brought this many. You know, the, yeah, you know, could, could stack them up. Uh, has a, a current radio program, Let My People Think. Well, that makes good sense. So that, so that you don't check your brain at the door when you become a Christian, there can be this whole opportunity to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Some people have just that skill and ability. Got, their mind is wired that way. They, they do their homework. They're able to give a reasonable response to questions from critics or skeptics along the way. Apologetics is what that is about. Ravi Zacharias, Sundar Krishna is very similar. Another alliance guy, that kind. Of, and there, there are there are many. R.C. Sproul, just again, people that are in that field of apologetics. It's interesting. In verse ten, it says they, but they could not stand up against two things: his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. There's an interesting description there. 
could not stand up against him, could not stand up against. <clears throat> the word literally there is, see if this sounds familiar to our, antihistamine. That's, that's the word. It couldn't stand up against. And what we use antihistamines to stand up against issues that are respiratory in nature. So you stand up against. So here, Stephen has the ability to stand up against. And I'm not convinced that it was all about Stephen. It was, it was all about the spirit of God by whom he spoke. I think that's the key piece. You can you can do the do the mental gymnastics that are needed to try to convince somebody to believe something. Salesmen do it all the time. They're they're wired, they're geared, they're trained to try to get you to buy their product. Christianity is not intended to be a sales pitch that you somehow try to coerce somebody to buy something. You wear somebody down by your mental acumen. And you can convince them or prove something to them. I, I'm convinced that that this whole issue of apologetics, in terms of being an apologetic person, is a function of who you're connected with in terms of wisdom and the spirit by whom you spoke. That's the thing that is more compelling. That's the thing that is going to draw people. It's not you. It's God. It's the God in you. It's the spirit of God in you that gives you just the right words that are needed to speak truth. Gives you right, gives you just the sense of his presence upon you and the spirit of God filling you so that it becomes more powerful than the words you speak. It becomes powerful because it is God in you, God upon you, who convinces. The scripture said, it, Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to me. I will draw all men to me. And the Spirit of God within us is the thing that draws people. It is the thing that will convince people. Um, and it's not just a function of trying to, to uh, uh, try to just learn all the techniques and all the issues that you can pick up in terms of tools to, to help you convince somebody of something. It's the irresistibility of the Spirit of God that draws men to himself. We find somebody who has a need and you become the person or the agent or the person who gets the chance to share that message of love and Christ. And, and you, you have that opportunity. In Luke 12, Jesus said, don't worry when you're called up before people. Don't worry about the words that I'm going that, that you, you get concerned about. He, he says, the Holy Spirit will teach you and give you what you need to say. Have you been in those situations where where God has provided an opportunity for you and you've had the chance to speak words and you say, I don't know where those words came from. I don't know how, where that, maybe there's a long reach back to something that was meaningful to you, a verse that was meaningful to you, and you get to share that with someone else. That's the message. That's the wonder of apologetics. And it was a formidable force. It really ticked off the opposition. You really ticked off the people. It says, they began to argue with Stephen in the end of verse 9, beginning verse 10, but they couldn't stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. There was this undermining flow of things that was trying to take Stephen down, but they couldn't do it. They couldn't do it because God was upon the man. He was filled man. He was a formidable, formidable man. And one of the other qualities was he was a man of courage. 
I would tell you he's a courageous man. Look at some of the descriptions there in Acts 6, 11. He was courageous in the face of secret conspiracy. You don't know what people are trying to do in, in relation to you. There may be people who would choose to try to undermine you. We were talking about a prayer need earlier before, well, well before service began, about some things that were going on in a local church. And, and there was a kind of an undermining of person's, person's credibility. And so there's this kind of like undertow that's behind the scenes. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what the motives of people are. Sometimes they are intended <clears throat> to pull you down or lift themselves up. Uh, whatever, the, whatever direction it is, there is this issue of the potential of secret conspiracy. It's interesting that that was a part of the tactic that was used against Jesus in Matthew 26. So it ought not to be surprising that Stephen and or you or me would face those same kinds of things. People have their agendas, <clears throat> and they're, they're often trying to pull you down. Peter demonstrated courage. He demonstrated courage also in the face of public opposition. When they set up this kangaroo court, verse 12 says, they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. Uh, they, they seized Stephen, brought him before the Sanhedrin, and then they... Then, the opposition began to swell at that point. In the face of that public opposition, Peter still demonstrated courage. His confidence was in the Christ whom he served, was in the spirit by whom he was filled. And also in the face of false accusation, as the story continues, verses 13 and 14, they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against his holy place and against the law. We word him, so we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom of Moses, customs Moses handed down to us. And so there's this false accusation that comes against him. Um, it's difficult as we walk the Christian life, as we live the Christian life, it's difficult for us to uh, respond positively when people say things that are untrue about you. It's, it's, it's like you're not, you want to get in a fair fight, that's fine. But when someone speaks something that's not true about you, th that, those words have done damage, and you don't have control over how you're going to rectify that, how you're going to prove the case that you really are a genuine deal. Uh, and I hate that when there's false accusations come. But don't be surprised when that happens, because that's what our world does. That's what unsanctified Christ followers at times do in terms of their response as well. But he was a man who was a formidable force for God. Um, and all of the descriptions that are available, apologetic and courageous. One final piece. And this is the one where almost we started with. Uh, in verse 15, finally, Stephen was a, I'll use the simply word, it was a radiant, a radiant man. I don't know how else to describe that phrase where it says they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Uh, now they used to have an old song that said, and uh, this, this, this is not in the top 10 chart today. Okay, so here's it. Here's the old song. 
baby face. You've got the cutest little baby face. Now that's old. That's old. Some of you say, that was even before I was born. How do you find that? Well, listen, I grew up with a lot of stuff. Uh, but, but I never heard I never heard any, a song called Angel Face. There probably is. I could probably Google that, you know, Angel Face. But when, when they looked at Stephen, here's the descriptor. They saw that his face was the, like the face of an angel. I thought, what would that be like? What would that be like? I, I don't know that I've seen angel faces lately. You know, maybe in your dreams or something like that, you might find something. But, but there are enough previous disclosures of Scripture to describe what it might be. So let me just remind you about a couple, and I think I put them up there. It reminded me of the, of the experience of Moses in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, where he goes up and he's with God, and he's not even aware of the consequence of being with God how it would alter his appearance. And he comes down from the mountain, and uh, I, I can't, uh, probably King James puts it something like this, he wist not that, he, that his face would, you know, whatever. He didn't have a clue that being in God's presence would have such an effect upon his countenance. He comes down, and the people have to cover his face because it just, the glory of God was upon Moses in such a way that they thought, this is a holy thing. We, we, we can't stand being in that presence. So that was a reminder to me. I think that might be what an angel face is like. It's like the presence of the glory of God all about a person. I thought of the story of the, of the Luke, Luke chapter 9 and Jesus at the transfiguration, uh, where, where the scriptures say uh, when, when, they were, when they were in God's presence, his face, his his whole countenance was transfigured, was changed. Um, the, the song we sang a little bit ago, yeah. Take my heart, transform it. Take my mind. I've got the words already, but but there was this whole issue of transformation uh, to be more like. Christ. And I think that's probably what Jesus experienced in terms of the, the glory of God upon his face. And then I was reminded of this verse in 2 Corinthians 3. It says this, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so when Stephen, before he begins this long discourse in Acts chapter 7, which we won't exhaustively go into, okay? I just want to let you know, we're not going to, that's a long, that's a repeat of a lot of Peter's preaching and stuff. We'll probably pick snippets of it. But at any rate, I can envision Peter simply be, or Stephen simply being in the presence of God in the place of communion with God, that it begins to transform him, the, the spirit of God all over him. So that when the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, verse 15, they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I, uh, uh, it, would have been it would have been interesting to be a mouse in the corner in that kind of setting to see what it was that made the difference how irresistible the presence of the Spirit of God upon a person 
is and what it does. So when we look at this profile and courage of Stephen as a filled man, formidable man, and a radiant man, it comes back to the question that we almost started with uh, earlier. We began with, what is it that people notice most about you? What is the thing that captures their attention about you? Is it the graciousness of God upon you, full of grace and truth? Is it the presence of the Spirit of God, a, a spirit that's gentle, a spirit that's used the words holiness, righteousness? You know, those words to describe about you. Probably those people who are filled with God's Spirit simply exude a sense of Him that is unmistakable. There's something about you, at least there ought to be, that makes it very clear that you are one of his. The Spirit of God is dwelling upon you. I know from time to time I go and pull old stuff, old stuff, old music sometimes. And so you got baby face, that's a real, but that's not so much of a theological treatise but I would tell you the very simple chorus that I remember growing up with as a young person at First Alliance Church, what was then called Erie Gospel Tabernacle, was, was one of these choruses that I learned. It was simply this. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. Oh, thou spirit divine, all my nature refine, till the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. And that simple little chorus is probably what we're talking about in terms of angel face, the difference that Jesus makes in our lives. Um, I don't know that Stephen knew what was going to happen next. We know the end of the seventh chapter results in him being stoned to death. I, I don't know that he had a clue that that's what it was going to lead to. Maybe he would have been just as thrilled if he could have a defense of the gospel that resulted in many people coming to faith in Christ and, and convincing, persuading, in the art of Christian persuasion, persuading. I think he would have been delighted in that. But you know, that never happened. As a matter of fact, what happens is that there's this huge opposition against him except for one person whose life was touched. And that was Acts chapter 8 where you have this guy named Saul who is consenting to Stephen's death. And something happens where he uh, is impacted by angel-faced Stephen and the countenance of the Spirit of God that just pervaded his life. I don't, I don't know how it's going to work for you in terms of the context of the difference that Jesus is going to make upon your life. There was one, one little girl, I read a story, a little girl that was 
just going about her business. She was a young Christian gal, and and there was a very dignified person who was, I think it was at a train train station kind of thing story, and then the gal was just kind of just walking back and forth and just kind of doing her own thing, and this very dignified lady uh, called her over and said, uh, uh, why are you so happy? And the gal says, well, I didn't know I was I didn't know I was trying to, I wasn't trying to be happy. I was just going about business. And she said, well, she said, the reason that I, I'm happy is that I, I have found a relationship with Jesus. Would you like me to tell, would you like me to tell you about that? And, and that led to one thing leads to another things and, and, and it has an impact upon the lives of people. I hope you don't go around trying to put on a plastic face and just, okay, I got to put my Christian face on now because I'm in church or I'm gonna, people are going to see me. It, no, it's just the presence of the Spirit of God upon you that makes all the difference in the world. And the people will be out there and they will be watching and they will see the difference that Jesus can make. So let the beauty of Jesus be seen in us. Um. We're going to sing that song that I didn't have all the words for in my head, or probably twisted around a little bit, where it talks about coming before him and being the holiness of God and brokenness, righteousness. So uh, let's pause for prayer, and then we'll enter uh, as a closing worship point um, to present ourselves to the Father for his new and renewed work in our lives. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I'm convinced a sermon isn't going to change somebody necessarily today, but I'm convinced that you can. And I do believe that you want to have a monopoly on our lives. I do believe that you want to... Uh, Take us and use us and transform us and conform us to the image of Christ so that the evidence of uh, the profile of our life will demonstrate the power and the glory of God. It may not be so much by what we say, but by what we are that will be a convincing factor for people about us. Enable us to be people who are full of faith and the Spirit, full of grace and truth, full of grace and power, available for you to be used. So meet us and uh, do your work in our hearts as we bring this service to its close. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. <clears throat>